of their shackles, the hope that tomorrow the doorway to joy will be found. There's joy all around us. Why wait till tomorrow? We've only this moment to live. A heaven within us is ours for the finding, a freedom no riches can give. A heaven within us is ours for the finding, a freedom no riches can give. There's joy in the heavens, a smile on the mountains, and melody sings everywhere. The flowers are all laughing to welcome the morning, your soul is as free as the the flowers are all laughing to welcome the morning. Your soul is as free as the air. The flowers are all laughing to welcome the morning. Your soul is as free as the air. not a good idea when one of the main themes is to overcome our desires to come up with a bag like this and incite envy and desire in the hearts of everyone. <laughs> but on the other hand, it is the job of a minister to in uh, invite desire for God in the hearts of everyone. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? We just received it this morning from Dhyanaji in India. I'm going to attach to it. There will be some battles in our household. <laughs> Who gets to carry what? So, as I said, we're going to talk about how to be happy all the time. And this week, we're taking themes from this wisdom series, the Wisdom of Yogananda series, which are books that we have done over the uh, several years. Uh, Anandi has done a beautiful job of editing. And I can't recommend highly enough that you get this series of books because it covers different topics that we will be covering this week, and this is how to be happy all the time. I want to start by describing what Master explained as the mechanism for happiness and unhappiness, and in fact the mechanism for not only delusion or maya, but how to get out of delusion and maya. As we know, God is beyond creation. The consciousness of God can function, does function, is beyond anything in the manifested world, and not just the physical world, the causal, the astral, and the physical world. In order to take the pure consciousness of unity and cause a creation to come out of that, God uses the mechanism of vibration. In a sense, the vibration, in a sound sense, is the sound of Om. And so that vibratory movement is what causes duality and causes creation. And so 
God's unity of consciousness is set into a vibratory motion and that's what causes everything that we see around us to have the appearance of reality. Ultimately, we will discover that behind the appearance of duality is only unity. Behind all of what we think of as outside of ourself is nothing. It's all just pure consciousness. But let me apply this specifically now to the question of happiness because Master described a very simple, very clear mechanism. One of the things, I just have this, I don't know, peculiar mentality that I enjoy finding out and knowing how things work. And Master talked about how this works in such a simple way. There's just such simplicity in all of this and it all works together. So the vibration, the waves of vibration create sound, they create light, they create energy, they create appearance, they create the physical, causal man and uh, astral manifestations, those waves of vibration. But in terms of happiness, they also create happiness and unhappiness. Master said that everyone in the world is motivated by exactly the same fundamental motivation to be happy and to avoid pain. And everything that we do is an extension of that fundamental motivation. The reason it's there is that God in the unity before he comes out into creation is described by uh, Adi Shankara as having three aspects, Satchitananda, existence, consciousness, and bliss. And as that pure existence, consciousness, bliss descends into manifestation, it kind of becomes vaguer and more shadow-like. And so we have existence, we know that we're alive, we don't have to be told by anyone that we're alive, and yet we fear that when what we see and what we feel, our body, our personality, when that dies, that we won't be alive anymore. But because we're part of that ultimate consciousness, we can't die. We can never die. Once we've come into existence, we will exist forever, just as the Creator exists forever. Chit, consciousness, is the next aspect for us that means that we have the desire to know, the desire to understand. And chit also refers to what Swami was talking about yesterday, to the fundamental, the, as he called it, Master called it, the primordial feeling aspect of creation, the chitwa, which resides primarily in the heart. And so that chitwa, the feeling aspect, is before one could say discrimination or the mind. It, it precedes that. And we will never be truly unconscious. Even the rocks are not unconscious. The rocks, everything in creation is trying because it's part of the infinite creation of God, the infinite aspect of God. 
everything in creation is striving to increase its consciousness until it becomes absolute and omniscient. So that's why Darwin is wrong and the mechanism of evolution is wrong. Not that evolution doesn't happen, but the mechanism is wrong because the materialists want it to be just random and material-based. But it's consciousness-based. It's, it's the chit aspect striving to become ever more, ever more, ever more conscious until it achieves omniscience, complete consciousness. And then ananda. Ananda is bliss, and that's a fundamental aspect once we get rid, yesterday Swami talked about veils over our consciousness. Once we get rid of those veils, every veil, and there could be billions of them, but every veil, once they're gone, what remains is Sat Chidananda, and we see ourselves to be that. But as Sat Chidananda descends into the world, it takes on a less clear aspect. And so in this world, when ananda, joy, bliss, descends, it takes on the aspect of happiness and sorrow or pleasure and pain because it's in vibration. And so Master described this like the ocean with its waves. He said that desire, the desire of, of the chitwa, remember Swami said the very first um, Sutra from Patanjali that he talked about yesterday is the second one, which is Yogas Chitwa Vritti Narod. Yoga, the union with God, occurs automatically when the vortexes of Chitwa or of primordial feeling are neutralized. That's the meaning of that. Well, Master talked about it also as waves, waves on the sea. So we have this motivation, fundamental motivation, desire for happiness. And every desire, he said, creates a sense that if you fulfill that desire, you're happy. And if you don't fulfill that desire, then you're unhappy or happiness and sadness. And those are the waves on the ocean. So there's a peak that is happiness then there's a peak that is sadness, a peak happiness, sadness. Think of the uh, Pacific Ocean and all of the waves in the Pacific Ocean, and they come to nothing in terms of the waves that we are now creating in our own consciousness and have created over however many lifetimes we have lived. So desire fulfilled creates happiness, unfulfilled sadness. In between two peaks of the waves is a trough, and that trough is boredom. <laughs> and so we have happiness, boredom, sadness, boredom, happiness, boredom, <laughs> sadness, boredom. And Master said that if you quell those waves so that there's no wave action, that creates peace. But he said there's a positive peace and a negative peace. A negative peace is the quelling of the waves, but you haven't quelled the vibrational motivation 
of the outward energy that causes those waves. So, and he said that if you do that, and he used the example, Swami has also used it, of let's say you get a big inheritance, you get a beautiful house in a lovely part with a, of the country, beautiful view, nice garden, everything is perfect, you don't have to worry. You're there, you're happy because your desires have been fulfilled. And six months later, you're kind of wondering about the garden and can't you change it? And then pretty soon he says, you're sitting there waiting for someone to come knock you on the head so that you know that you're alive. Because the energy, the outward going energy has not been stilled, even though the waves temporarily have become stilled. He called that negative peace. Another way that we can think of it is that they have pools. They use them in uh, movies and sometimes in amusement parks where they have pools that they create waves. And they do that by having a big kind of part of the wall that pushes out and pushes in. And rhythmically it does that and it creates these waves. Now, at least theoretically, you could take that pool and you could put a top on that pool so that even though that ram was going back and forth, the top was pushing down the, the surface of the water so that no waves could be created. That's repression. <laughs> and so when we try to push down the tendency toward happiness and sadness, driven by desire, likes and dislikes, they're both desires, but driven by those desires, we try to push them down, all we do is suppress. And as long as that ram is going there, if it gets powerful enough, it's gonna blow your top, or it's gonna blow the sides out of the pool, or some destructive aspect is going to happen, right? So, that's negative peace. We can quell the waves for a little while. We can suppress for a little while, not healthily, but we can stop the wave motion or at least decrease it. But as long as the desires are still going, then inevitably it's going to reawaken again. Now we do this every day in meditation as we withdraw the energy. One way to, the real way to stop that wave motion is what? In, in the artificial pool I'm talking about now, is what? You pull the plug on that stupid ram that's going <laughs> back and forth. What is that? How do you pull the plug? Well, with the ram, there's some electrical switch. With us, there's pranayama. Prana is the energy that drives that. And so the practices of yoga by pranayama we pull that energy back. And in every meditation, even bad ones, we achieve some level of peace because those late waves are quelled. And that's why we should try to hold on to it. But here's the really interesting and important part of what Master said. There's also positive peace. And positive peace comes when that wave motion is quelled and we can look underneath the waves 
and see bliss. And when we can look underneath the waves and see bliss, then that bliss, if we get in touch with it, becomes more attractive and more powerful than the outward pull. And so getting in touch with that inner bliss actually allows us to replace the desire for outward something outside of ourselves for the desire for our own true nature, which is Satchitananda again. And so that replacement or transmutation of energy, energy can't be destroyed. It can only be transmuted. So the transmutation of energy from the direction outward to inward is the whole secret of happiness if you want permanent happiness. If you want temporary happiness, you can play on the waves of happiness. You're going to get the wave of sadness following it, but you can seek, and we've all got desires. We've all got little delusions that we still carry that say, if only I had, and you can fill in the blank. I don't know how long your list is, so I'm not going to and I don't know what's on it, so I don't want to add anything by, by, by giving you any of my list. But you can fill as long as you have something on your list that resides outside of yourself. Then you continue that pumping motion and you give away your power to become permanently happy. Because those things that reside outside of yourself will not cannot, by the very nature of creation, provide permanent happiness. All they can do is give you temporary happiness and then sadness following that. But more importantly and more destructively, doing that also trains you to look outside yourself for happiness. And as Master said, desires ever fed are never dead. And so you look outside yourself for happiness, and if you work toward it, you will achieve the happiness that you're looking for. It's just that it won't last. You know, Swami talked yesterday about even the desire for an ice cream cone. You can get that ice cream cone. If you have a desire for it, get the ice cream cone. It'll satisfy that desire. You'll have that little temporary happiness of your ice cream cone. But then, how long does an ice cream cone last? You think that's your last desire? <laughs> or is the tendency now awakened to find more things that will give you that little temporary hit? And you keep pushing outside yourself with desires they create tendencies. Tendencies create moods. Moods create habits. And it even, through the incarnations, it begins to replicate itself in our very biological structure. So that this isn't just kind of random, I don't know, uh, circumstance where, oh, maybe I'll create a desire today. This is the way God has created the universe that carries on for a day of Brahma, many billions of years. And remember, Swami has said yesterday that some people 
wander through many days of Brahma trying to satisfy those desires? It can't be just, oh, I think I'll create some desires today. It's got to, if it's going to last for billions and billions of years, it's got to be not only universal, but an extraordinarily powerful force. So the net of Maya, the sea of Maya with these waves, is an extraordinarily attract, uh, powerful attractant for our consciousness. And we go for that over and over and over again. So again, how do we get out of that? Not by satisfying those desires, not by repressing, but by seeing that beneath, as we begin to calm, as we begin to get the waves calm, we can see beneath that that bliss exists. This is even true on a physical level, that if we calm the waves on the surface of water, we can see underneath the water. We had an interesting kind of example of this some years ago. We were with friends in, on Lake Washington in uh, Seattle. And I had a nice pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses to which I was a little bit attached. I'm going to talk about non-attachment a little later, but <laughs> to, to which I was still a little bit attached. And they slipped off my head and fell down into the water. And I dove down several times trying to find them. I couldn't find where they were. It was about eight or ten feet deep. And then the thought came on my mind because I knew this principle. If I found a bottle or a piece of glass, I could put it on and still the wave motion enough so that I could see down. So I found one and put it on the water and I could see through that and look down to the bottom, see where my sunglasses were, and then I dove down and got them. But see, even on a physical level, everything is tied together. The physical level isn't different from the spiritual level. It just demonstrates the spiritual level. And so even on a physical level, if you quell the waves on a surface of water, you can see down into the depths. But now, in meditation, what we're trying to do is to see down into the depths of our own consciousness and what lies there but bliss, Satchitananda lies there but especially bliss. And Master said that one of the very, very most important things that we can do is that after, he called it the after effect of meditation, the peaceful after effect of meditation. Lahiri Mahashaya uh, described it as the uh, calm uh, after effect poise of Kriya Yoga that when we withdraw the energy a little bit, which causes the wave motion, then peace comes. And if we look down through that peace and get in contact with, the own, with our own bliss that resides within us, and then at the end of our meditation practices, if we spend time in touch with that bliss, that begins to awaken in our hearts and in our minds, the reality of our inner world, the reality of bliss within and God within and peace and 
joy and calmness, all of those qualities of God that reside within. If, But he said most important is to spend time at the end of meditation trying to get in touch with that bliss and then to carry that into our daily activities. As we carry it into the daily activities, then it becomes something that becomes more and more permanent in our lives because it isn't enough just to meditate and then leave your meditation and then forget about God. Master said the highest prayer, he said two highest prayers. One was, Father, reveal thyself that I might, to me, reveal thyself to me, that I might help reveal thee to all. And the other was, I will think, I will will, I will act, but guide thou my thought, will, and activity to the right path in everything. So I want to talk about that. I will think, I will will, I will act, but guide thou my right thought, will, and activity to the right path in everything. Now, we can pray that once a day or once a week or once a month. And if we do, it'll have some effect on us. But it won't have very much effect on us if that's all we do. We have to make our contact with God more and more permanent and more and more awakened and vital in our consciousness if we're going to really make very serious progress. And let me say that we have with us right now in the Ananda vibration. Remember Swami said yesterday that having an avatar for a guide is an extraordinary, powerful influence in our spiritual life, the, the most powerful of all. We have optimal conditions now in this lifetime. And to not make use of them is just silly. There's a beautiful book that I have read before and uh, was given. I had a birthday a couple of weeks ago and someone gave me this as a present. I didn't know that it was back in print. This is Letters by a Modern Mystic, which are letters, excerpts of letters by a man named Frank Laubach, who was a missionary to the Philippines. And uh, while he was there, he basically was not having any success at all. He was on a little island. He wasn't having any success at all converting people to Christianity. Uh, they had their own thing going and Anyway, so he had a lot of time alone and a lot of time not doing very much. And he began a practice of turning his mind to God. And then he began the practice of trying to turn his mind more and more completely to God. And I want to read a couple of excerpts from this because it's, it's really beautiful. This is an extremely inspiring book, and I would recommend it to everyone. In fact, if Maghi's here, I'd get a big box of them so you can sell them. For the past few days, I've been experimenting in a more complete surrender than ever before. I am taking, by deliberate act of will, I'm going to repeat that, by deliberate act of will, 
enough time from each hour to give God much thought. Yesterday and today I have made a new adventure which is not easy to express. I am feeling God in each moment by an act of will, willing that he direct these fingers that now strike this typewriter, willing that he shall pour through my steps as I walk, willing that he shall direct my words as I speak, and my very jaws as I eat. In a slightly later letter, he says, I feel simply carried along each hour, doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. This sense of cooperation with God in little things is what so astonishes me, for I never have felt this way before. I need something and turn around to find it waiting for me. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. To know this gives a sense of security and assurance for failure, which is also new to my life, but for, excuse me, assurance for the future, which is also new to my life. I seem to ha have to make sure of only one thing now, and every other thing, quote, takes care of itself, or I prefer to say what is more true, God takes care of all the rest. My part is to live this very hour in continuous inner conversation with God and in perfect responsiveness to his will and to make this hour gloriously rich. This seems to be all I need to think about. That puts a whole new slant on the prayer. I will think, I will will, I will act. What if it becomes not a prayer that happens once a day but a prayer that happens continuously in us. He also goes on in this book to talk about that it seems difficult at first to train the mind to do this, but he said that if we're going to learn a difficult task like taking shorthand or playing the, playing the piano, it takes practice, and at first we're clumsy, and can't do it very well. But then as we practice, it becomes easier until someone who has practiced for a two or three years to take shorthand takes it automatically without even thinking about the shorthand. They're just thinking about the conversation or what's happening and the rest is being done virtually automatically. For sure they have to participate in that. But they don't have to recreate the world in order to get this going. And what he's saying is that this is exactly the same thing. That if we train the mind in the habit of turning to God continuously, that the mind actually is able relatively easily to adopt this habit. And then it becomes permanent and it becomes life transforming. I have from time to time given this experiment a good try and I can testify from my own experience that as you begin to work on the mind to turn it more and more continuously to God that it actually does start taking on a momentum of its own. So that if you chant to God, which is one way that we would do it, 
I would suggest that you take one chant and do that chant over and over again, maybe for a week or a month. And if you do that, if you do it enough during the day, if you wake up at the night in the middle of the night, that chant will be going in your mind. If you stop and just let your mind become still a little bit, that chant will be going in your mind. Much better, of course, is to give it conscious energy, conscious uh, attempt. And at the end of this beautiful little book, he has something called the game of minutes. And the game of minutes is to see if you can think of God for one second in each minute, at least one second in each minute. He said, try this when you're at a church service. Or try this, let's say, while you're at a lecture <laughs> at Spiritual Renewal Week. And see if, for the rest of the morning, you can get your mind to think of God consciously for at least one second. And then see what your score is. He actually has a little sheet where you take score. And uh, so you can play this game of minutes. But do it, start it first, where it's easiest to do it. When you're in a spiritually uplifted environment, or when you're eating, or when you're still, or when you're in the parking lot, or when you're in a line, or wherever you're in a place where your mind doesn't have to actively get engaged in outward concentrated activity, if you focus on turning your mind at least for one second to God and build up that habit of doing that, then you can go on to harder and harder parts of that. But understand, it's not that hard. It's not something that's beyond us or impossible. Thousands of people have done this because of this book. And maybe, maybe you try once a, once a minute just to turn to Master and say, guide my thought, will, and activity. Just that much would do it. And if you did that for a while, I guarantee that your life is going to be transformed. Now, what are some of the other aspects that that happens when the mind begins to turn toward God, begins to turn to that connection? Well, Frank Laubach said, everything else takes care of itself. Uh, as Christ put it, um, Give, what is it? Think, think ye first, seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything will be added unto you. So seek first, a second, a minute, the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. Everything you need, physical, mental, spiritual, everything. Seek it outside of yourself and you get into the sea of Maya with the waves that go up and down, up and down. And what does God say about that? Krishna says, get away from my sea of Maya. Calls it Sukadukadam. Get away from the sea of Sukadukadam. Pleasure, pain. The world of pleasure and pain. So 
This turning of the heart and mind toward God gives us a whole new perspective on how to work. Master also recommends this. Every spiritual person, every spiritual guide that I have ever read recommends it in one way or another. Not exactly in the same form, but Ananda Moy Ma said, keep a continual chant going or a continual mantra going. Chanting the name of God, it's not that you're chanting to God, it's God chanting God in you. So God is already present when you sing the name of God. And he's there. He's present all the time anyway. Where else could he be except everywhere? And if he's everywhere, he's also in us all the time. But we aren't aware of it. So chanting his name makes us aware that he's already present there. Master, I want to read this to you. Master in this said, you can find, I'm going to first read this. You can find God in the solitude of your own room when in the early morning hours and before sleeping you compose yourself for meditation with folding hands, folded hands say, Father, thou art omniscient. Thou knowest my every thought. Talk to me. I want to hear your voice. Say it mentally again and again until you feel it. You have to culture this feeling, to work for it. Repeat the prayer again and again until you find your heart throbs with love and yearning for God and you get a conscious response. Father, thou art omniscient. You knowest my every, thou knowest my every thought. Talk to me. I want to hear your voice. If you repeat that once a minute, what's it going to do to your consciousness? These great saints are all saying the same thing. They're saying, turn your heart and mind to God. Christ said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. And when we hear that, we tend to think, oh, well, kind of vaguely about it. But what if we translate that into love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. If we train ourselves so that every feeling that we have, we train ourselves, if it isn't given to God, at least it's reference to God. Then when you want that ice cream cone, you say, God, let's enjoy an ice cream cone together. You don't have to stop having the ice cream cone. You just give the thought and your hearts and your desires to God. And with your thoughts and with the mind and your strength, strength means your prana. Now, I want to end by saying, I was talking about this repeating, pulsating thing that keeps waves alive in our artificial pool. In the world, it's the rotation of the earth and the action of the wind and the moon, those cause waves on the ocean, on the surface of the ocean, and it's continuous. The rotation of the earth has been going on longer than you and I have been here. 
and will continue far past when we're here. And these forces are universal. But what about us? What is the pulsing mechanism in us? What is the rhythmical pulsing mechanism that we've had with us this whole incarnation? The breath. Every minute that you have been alive in this incarnation, you have been breathing. And that breath is what draws us toward outwardness. The physical breath is caused by the movement of astral energy up and down in the subtle spine. And so the pulsing, the waves that keep us outwardly bound, is the movement of energy up and down in the spine. Think of that as a wave motion. Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Long as the breath is going, we are going to have, because that breath draws us into the physical world and in the physical world, the senses are operative and we think that happiness or pleasure comes through the senses. The fact that we're breathing means that we're going to have desires. There's no way around that. So, and we know that desires create waves and waves are happy and unhappy, happy and unhappy. So how do we get out of that? Just like pulling the plug on that ram that creates the waves, we pull the plug on the breath. How do we do that? Pranayama. That's the whole of the techniques of our spiritual path. Kriya Yoga, Hong Saw, Energization, Om, all of those basic techniques pull the plug on the movement of prana, on, on prana. And as we withdraw prana or control the prana, yama, prana, yama means control. As we control that life force, it pulls us back. As we pull back even more, it draws us away from the senses to the next stage in Patanjali, which uh, is in Swami's new book, but he talks about it, but many of you know. But Pratyahara is the next stage as we pull back from that energy source then it pulls back from the senses. And the senses, when they're not operative, we automatically fall back into the peaceful state and then we begin to see beneath the surface in our own consciousness, which is what true meditation is, we begin to see meditation is, Master defined it, as deep concentration on God or on one of the eight aspects of God, or God on, or on one of his aspects. And so as we achieve the withdrawal from energy or prana, withdrawal from the senses, we begin to see these aspects of God, and they're not outside of ourselves. They're our very own true nature. And as we begin to see beneath the surface, that's the positive peace that Master's talking about. So peace is the quelling of the uh, withdrawal of the prana and the withdrawal of the senses. That's peace. And we see beneath that, in true meditation, we uh, see the aspects of God and we come to realize that those aspects of God are inside of us. And that becomes much, 
much more attractive than anything the world outside can give us. And so in that deep inner attractiveness, we haven't suppressed anything. We haven't denied anything. We have simply reconnected with who and what we truly are. And as we deepen that practice, it takes us toward the higher states of consciousness where we merge with everything in creation. First, that's, that's Christ consciousness, and then we merge with God beyond creation. But that is our own true nature, and it is our own true destiny. And when we begin these powerful, powerful, but very simple practices, then we see our own nature, and only then can we be happy all the time.